So for my job, I'm constantly reading articles and scrolling through social media because a big piece of my job is helping churches understand the culture of the people around them. And every now and then, I'll be reading an article about some hot-button topic, and I get to the bottom of the article, and there it is, the comments section. Now, I know better than to go down there, because you see, the comment section of an article, it's like that creepy door to the basement in your grandparents' old house. As a kid, you knew there was nothing good down there. In fact, you were pretty sure that monsters lived down there. And yet, curiosity would get the best of you. And before you knew it, you were staring down into the dark hole. That dark hole is the comment section for most articles on the internet nowadays. All of humanity's depravity, well, it's on display in internet comment sections. Uh, we've got a term for this now, in fact. We're in the midst of what people call the outrage culture. Heather Wilhelm, in an article for the Chicago Tribune, she writes, for a frightening number of people, the art of being offended by everything, or even better, loudly and publicly complaining about being offended by everything, is pursued with alarming dedication. For some, being offended is practically a credo, an all-encompassing way of life. It's normal today to be outraged, to be perpetually offended. Sometimes it's because someone has criticized your particular belief on something. Uh, other times it's the name of taking a stand because everything is headed in the wrong direction. Whatever the case, outrage is the new mode of public discourse. But I want to tell you today that there's a difference between having firm convictions and participating in a culture of outrage. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this point specifically to his followers. The main idea of our sermon today is this. Jesus calls his true disciples to respond differently to a hateful world, commanding us to refuse retaliation and instead extend grace to our enemies. Only then can we look like our Heavenly Father and speak the gospel with integrity. If you will, turn with me to Matthew 5. Uh, we'll start in verse 38. The word of the Lord tells us this. It says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here in this passage, we see two commands from Jesus that instruct us on how to deal with an outrage culture. Uh, let's take this first one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, and this is Jesus talking, I say to you, 
do not resist the one who is evil. Now that eye for an eye language, it sounds pretty brutal, but it was actually about keeping punishment fair. In other words, it was a just system in which a severe crime received a severe punishment, but a light crime could only receive a light punishment. So you couldn't take someone's life for knocking out a person's tooth. However, here Jesus is correcting a misuse and abuse of this law as a means for returning insult for insult. See, the purpose of the law was never to give license to inflict as much pain on someone as you thought they had inflicted upon you. Instead, Jesus calls his followers to a completely different standard in their personal dealings with others. The Jewish law was concerned about people's actions. Jesus' commands surpass a person's actions. They go on to a person's attitude. You see, Jesus goes after the heart. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Instead of trying to use a misinterpretation of the law, uh, as an excuse for personal vengeance, Jesus commands his followers to refuse retaliation when treated poorly. Remember, Jesus is here talking about how we should handle interpersonal situations. It's not a statement about how the government should execute justice or whether or not it's ever justified to go to war. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Instead, this passage is between you and another person. So what does this say to us about our current situation? Oh, in an outrage culture, we must resist the urge to retaliate. In an outrage culture, silence often speaks louder than yelling back. When people try to dishonor us or humiliate us or embarrass us, Christians don't slap back. Instead, we realize that our honor does not come from us. And it is not something we seek vengeance for. Instead, the honor we should be concerned about is that of Christ. And our actions, they're no longer just a testimony to us. They're actually a testimony to him. And that's not all. Yelling back often places undeserved importance on the object of our outrage. Before long, our priorities are as out of whack as our cultures. We begin to believe the things everyone seems to be offended by or morally outraged about and are, in fact, the most important things in life to talk about. Then we spend our time fighting for the wrong things. Look, I'm not saying that none of today's outrage is warranted. A lot of it is. The world is sick with sin. That creates all kinds of injustice. There's a huge difference between speaking out against injustice and, well, getting in a Twitter fight. We've only got one life to spend in proclamation of the gospel. And that's hard to do when we're too busy fighting everyone that disagrees with us about something on Facebook. But refusing to retaliate, this is important, refusing to retaliate is not an excuse to be passive or avoid people. You see, Jesus' command, it's not a call to disengage. It's a command to go the extra mile instead. It was common under Roman occupation during Jesus' day for soldiers to demand that citizens carry their pack. Uh, for this idea to have its full effect on us, we have to remember that Roman soldiers were part of an occupying state. They were an oppressive political power, and one that many Jews were itching to overthrow. In fact, several attempts had already been made in Jesus' day to start a rebellion to kick out the Romans. So, Jesus tells them to do something so very countercultural concerning the opposing political party. Not only were they to submit to the request to carry the pack, they were to exceed the expected distance. Do not just do what is expected of you to fulfill the obligation, Jesus tells them. Instead, 
do something that can only be explained by a genuine love for the person doing you wrong. Instead of returning insult for insult, go out of your way to return kindness instead. Instead of getting drawn into the outrage, we need to tell a better story. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now let's take a look at that second command. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If there was any question about whether or not Jesus' kingdom lifestyle is countercultural, then this final command should remove those doubts. Again, Jesus is not contradicting Old Testament law here. Instead, he's correcting abuses of it. The commands to love your neighbor, well, they're clearly spelled out in several places in the Bible. However, nowhere does it get even close to saying it's okay to hate your enemies. Instead, this was a convenient assumption that was based on the previous statement to love your neighbor. The idea was that they were, they were really only responsible for loving neighbors. Well, that meant that they could hate their personal enemy. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Active love is the appropriate response to our enemies. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his followers here. In this passage, an enemy is someone who sets themselves against a Christian because they are a Christian. Earlier in the same chapter, Jesus explains this. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, on his account. So to be clear, you will only get these kind of enemies if, well, people actually know you're a Christian. In this chapter, Jesus is assuming his real followers share the gospel with others. To Jesus, you're not a follower if you're not proclaiming the same message he was. Followers do the same thing as the person they follow. That's what following means. If you can't remember the last time you actually shared the gospel with someone who's not a Christian, then you've got some work uh, to do before you can even apply this part of the passage. But when you do, and when you begin to speak out the good news of King Jesus, to invite people to join Christ in his kingdom, then you will experience the enemies that Jesus has in mind here. There will be opposition. It will get personal. People will slander you. They may even question your intelligence because of what you believe. I mean, let's face it, cultural Christianity, it's, it's on its way out the door. But Jesus is clear, Christians, love their enemies. We pray blessings for our enemies. Let me ask you, think with me for a minute. When was the last time your knee-jerk reaction was to pray for someone who was purposefully opposing you because of your faith? It's easy to love the people that are just like you, that believe like you. It's easy to spend all of your time talking to those people. In fact, it's easy to spend your time with those people talking bad about the people that don't like you. Jesus asks, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Jesus says, don't resist the evildoer. Don't retaliate in order to feel vindicated in this outrage culture. Jesus says to love your enemies. 
Don't be gracious only to those who agree with you. Extend grace even to your enemies, especially to your enemies. Now, there's one more thing I want you all to see in this passage. Jesus provides this extremely counterculture understanding of how we deal with opposition and hatred. But I think we need to notice why. You see, Jesus does not tell his followers to do this for just purely pragmatic reasons. We don't love our enemies to make them like us. We don't turn the other cheek because love will somehow destroy personal hatred toward us. Going the extra mile, it's not a strategy to win an argument or even change someone's mind. Now, that may happen, but nowhere is any of that suggested in this passage. And it's certainly not our motivation for loving our enemies. You see, in verse 45, Jesus gives us the reason. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see what Jesus is doing? He's calling us to bear the family resemblance. As Christians, we've been adopted into the family of God. The Bible tells us in other places that we're being conformed into Christ's image. We too are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. The motivation behind this countercultural lifestyle, it's not so that our coworkers won't think we're weird. It's bearing our family resemblance. That is the heartbeat of this strange way of living. Jesus finishes the passage by saying, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now many people throughout history have pointed out that Jesus' ethic in the Sermon on the Mount is really an impossible standard. Who can actually live this way, people have asked. Well, that's kind of the whole point. You see, the lifestyle of the kingdom, it requires a new heart. There's only one man who has ever followed this ethic perfectly, and he did it so that his work on the cross could serve as the needed sacrifice to fix our own sin problem. Jesus walked this road perfectly so that he could stand in our place and provide us with the spiritual life necessary to walk in such a ridiculous calling. If you've not accepted that good news, crossed over the line of faith, listen, there is no better time than today. We never look more like Jesus than when we sacrifice for those who would do evil to us. And that's exactly what he did. Living this way is acting out an echo of an event that happened so long ago. Jesus himself turned the other cheek as he was beaten and mocked. Roman soldiers, they cast lots for his coat. He not only walked the extra mile, but he did so carrying the weight of your sins and my sins on the cross. And he gave, not money, but his life. Loving your enemies is a message we all need to hear right now. It's a lifestyle we're not used to. Everyone in our society is dividing up into camps. Everything is us versus them nowadays. Everyone wants to demonize the other side. And listen, that fire comes from both corners. But we must be careful not to miss the point of this passage. Jesus is not telling his followers that it is bad they're being treated harshly by their enemies. He's telling them to expect it. And he's doing something much more. He's telling them not to return it. He's telling them to respond to the animosity, not with animosity in return, but with grace, with love. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven.